And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He only spent eight years of his long life in public service, and that was nearly half a century ago. Yet as he nears his 100th birthday, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger remains one of the most iconic, impactful, and controversial diplomats in American history. I sat down with him this week to discuss his life, career, the world today, and his new book, Leadership. And just one note for you Axe Files listeners, we're going to take a few weeks off, but we'll be offering some great alternative programming here we hope you'll enjoy. We'll see you after Labor Day. And now, my conversation with Dr. Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger, you've you've written a book, uh, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, and I want to ask you about the lessons uh, learned in that book. But this is your 16th book as you approach your 100th birthday, and there's plenty to be learned from your remarkable life and story as well. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start there and ask you about... Um, uh, your, your your childhood. You grew up in Germany, um, and uh, you grew up in the in the in the years leading up to World War II. Your dad your dad was an Orthodox Jew, and you and your family fled in 1935 after the Nuremberg uh, laws were uh, passed targeting Jews. Um, you emigrated. Um, I know that you. You kind of you've spoken in the past about how this that experience didn't exactly shape your life, but looking back at that period, um, what what gives rise to that kind of blood and soil ethno nationalism uh, that seized Germany then? Well, let me say that you said my my father was an Orthodox Jew, and that's absolutely accurate. He was, but he was also, he taught at a gymnasium, upper school of the German system, not that was in a way integrated. And that for a true was quite an achievement to be taken into the regular civil service. So that meant a lot to him. And as soon as Hitler came into power, he dismissed all Jewish. I was with the employees, and that was a terrible blow to my father. In that period, Jews really didn't have any civil rights, and they had the Nuremberg laws, which made that explicit, and they couldn't associate with non-Jewish people. So my parents, largely my mother, decided to emigrate, and in 1938, we came to the United States. It was Labor Day. When we arrived, it was September 5th. So my first view we got off the boat was on a holiday. So it looked like a tremendously lively. <laughs> People seemed at least visibly to have a good time. I knew so little about it that I thought the fire escapes, which I'd never seen before, were bulging So I thought every house had bulging where people could sit. This was in New York. 
I, I want to ask you more about your experience when you came, but I just want to ask you again, what conditions give rise to this kind of ethno-nationalism that Hitler represents? And I ask you that because we're seeing it around the world now. You know, we just had we just had an episode where uh, Orban of Hungary came and spoke at the CPAC convention here in the United States. It was like a union of pro-Trump supporters and Orban supporters, and it was very much steeped in that kind of ethno-nationalism. What is giving rise to that? And are there analogies to some of the things that went on in the 1930s? Actually, no comparison between what goes on here and what went on in Germany in the 1930s. Because here, it is the act of individuals or of groups that are distinct. There is no governmental action that supports it, and public opinion doesn't support it. In Germany, it was an action which was organized by the government into law, and it produced a deliberate breaking up into ethnic units that were totally separated. It was what one reads about what the South might have been here for black people before reforms that, that have passed and that haven't perhaps fully achieved their objectives yet. But here it's an exception, and it's against the law. There it was the rule that at any group of kit or any group of Hitler youth people, if one encountered them in the street, could beat you up without anybody helping. And well, my mother, for example, who had been brought up in the village where she knew everybody, uh, not to be permitted to go to any public place anymore, like swimming pools or even restaurants, had signs up to somewhat desired here. It was a much more fundamental, and it's, of course, something mm-hmm. that we must never permit to be approached here. You watched, I'm sure, I know because I've seen your comments, you watched with distress the events of January 6th last year. I'm sure you've seen the polls that suggest that, you know, a significant number of Americans, 70 percent of Republicans, think that the last election was illegitimate. Are these warning signs or are our institutions so uh, strong enough, essentially, to resist that? Well, our institutions, they've proved to be strong enough to resist that. The event was, it was not comparable to what Hitler did, but it was unacceptable. And whatever one's view of the nature of individual elections during the voting day, the outgoing president of the United States has an obligation for the transition to his successor. And that had been done throughout American history. And so an organized demonstration against the Congress, invading the Congress, was totally impermissible. Let me, I just want to return to your story. You uh, went to City College in New York. My father was a Jewish immigrant in New York at about the same time. You went to the, the City University of New York. You worked during the day at a, I read, a, a shaving brush factory to earn a living while you were in school. I went to night school. Correct. I was in the shaving brush factory for five years before I was drafted. When you were drafted, you ultimately returned to Germany, this time wearing the uni- uniform of the United States uh, Army, and you were among the liberators. You were in the 84th Infantry Division, and you liberated the Alem concentration camp. 
You're 22 years old. You are a German-born Jew. And I just want to read something that you wrote at the time as a 22-year-old. That is humanity in the, 21st, in the 20th century. People reach such a stupor of suffering that life and death, animation or immobility can't be differentiated anymore. And then who is dead and who is alive? The man whose agonized face stares at me from the cot or Folek Sama who stands with bowed head and emaciated body. Who is lucky? The man who draws circles in the sand and mumbles, I am free or the bones that are interred in the hillside. Searing, searing words. How did you process that as a 22-year-old Jewish emigrant to the U.S.? Well, by that time, I was in the uh, 84th Infantry Division. Yes. And our division liberated that gap. And it was really, people were so in a state that I did not know human beings could reach. They looked barely human. And they had captured one of their guards and tried to kill him or wound him. And they were too weak to do any serious damage to him or any damage to him. So the impact of this degree of suffering and also that in the camp, the prisoners were put into categories and the German prisoners, because criminals with a certain number of convictions were also put into concentration camps. But they were the top-ranking people in the camp, and the Jews were the lowest-ranking people in the camp. And the depth of suffering that could be reached by the prisoners who were barely alive, and some of them suffered when we gave them normal food because they couldn't digest it anymore. It was a shocking experience for me. And it, of course, brought to mind that if my family had left 12 months later, or tried to leave 12 months later, my parents would have been, my father would have been among them, could have been among them if he survived that long. So it left an image with me of a degree of, of human dignity, which is just impermissible, and it must be fought. In fact, you said, uh, I, I saw a speech you gave years later back uh, there, and you said, there's nothing I'm more proud of in my service to this country than having been one of those who had the honor of liberating the Alem concentration camp. And I know you lost uh, you lost some relatives, distant relatives uh, in the Holocaust. Four sisters of my father, we lost about 13 members of our family, cousins and aunts and and about half of the people with whom I went to school, my schoolmate, perished in the Holocaust. Awful, awful. It, it does raise a question because, you know, you know, you're such a towering figure in the whole foreign policy debate of the last 70, 80 years. And it raises the question about what America's obligations are relative to human rights in the world. You you famously advanced and practiced a theory of real politics, the idea that leaders must place must place national interest ahead of moral concerns. And uh, I know that in uh, in 1973 you were talking to President Nixon. This was in a taped conversation. Probably didn't know it was being taped, but about the movement to pressure the Soviets to allow more Jews to emigrate from Russia by withholding trade so they could escape Soviet oppression. And you told Nixon the emigration of Jews from the Soviet Union is 
not an objective of American foreign policy. And if they put Jews in the gas chambers in the Soviet Union, it's not an American concern, maybe a humanitarian concern. And I ask you this not to be... Um, I have never understood where that conversation comes from. And my, the first of all, the Jews were not put into gas chambers in the Soviet right. Union. And I can tell you what my basic view was. My basic view was that we had an obligation to try to prevent nuclear war and to try to improve human conditions wherever possible. So specifically on the issue of Jewish emigration from the Soviet Union, my difference was one of method. I argued that if we asserted we had a right to demand it, that would create an obstacle rather than an incentive. So in my first month at security advisor, I told the Soviet ambassador that we did not demand it as a right, but we would adjust our foreign policy on the basis of their performance. And on the basis of that conversation, Jewish emigration from the Soviet Union grew from 700 a month in the previous period to 37,000 at the end of the next two terms in office. That was my the basic view. What somebody picked out of an elect conversation with Nixon, it's in a way incomprehensible to me because this was the policy that we were doing. And it was our policy in general on human rights. It was different from what our political opponent held whose views on that subject are expected. So, and this is an issue that still comes up periodically, but it's not a philosophical difference between my view and, say, most of the democratic view. It's a practical difference with how in concrete cases one should proceed. Now, we have, there are many governments in the world that are pursuing inappropriate policies, immoral policies. And so how to balance pressures at persuasion? Every administration has to figure out for itself. But that is my basic view. Yeah. Just to be clear, I think that came from one of the Nixon tapes. That's why that, that quote exists. But I have but, seen but, it. I don't understand the context of it. There's ne- yeah. I've never said anything even remotely like it. And well, let, 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 let me ask you about Nixon himself, because I find it so interesting. You know, he's a, as you've written and as you know better than anybody on the planet, was a very complex figure. And he was um, famously hostile to intellectuals, elites, particularly Harvard, of the Harvard variety, having been deeply resentful toward Kennedy and the crowd that he brought in. How, how did you navigate that? Here you were, an eminent Harvard professor and uh, public intellectual. How did you how did you develop the relationship you did with Nixon? Because you really became his kind of alter ego on national security and foreign policy. Well, it was amazing that he appointed me to that position to begin with. I had been a uh, consultant to President Kennedy in the White House for 15 months at the beginning of the Kennedy administration. And I had personal relationship with both the president and especially with Bobby Kennedy. 
and I still maintain these relationships with the Kennedy family. To this day, my closest political associate in that period, I wasn't really a political figure, was Nelson Rockefeller. Whose, whose photo I see sitting over your, uh, over your left shoulder there. Yes, and who also, when Nixon was elected, I did not think that I would have any relationship with the Nixon administration. And then he invited me, and I actually did something which I wouldn't advise ambitious people to do. <laughs> I said, I'd like to think about it for a while, and I'd like to talk to Rockefeller. And Nixon said, take a week, which most presidents that I've met would not do to an applicant, the person considered for a position. And Rockefeller said to me, you have to consider that Nixon is taking a much bigger chance on you than you on him. And so that was a pretty decisive argument, and I accepted it. And on foreign policy, Nixon and I had suspected that substantial we were basically in agreement on what to do, because you can't be security advisor if you are not when it happened. So I thought it would be an adjustment, but Nixon, as I'm saying in this new book that has come out, treated me as a partner and not as a political figure. So there was, when I found out, I was now and then when I called on him after I had been appointed, told me that he had opposed my appointment because he thought that professors could not do that job and it should be done by somebody with administrative experience. So do you have any idea why Nixon chose you? Do you have any idea why he ignored Eisenhower and his aversion to you academic types and chose you? Nixon was an ambivalent personality. You mentioned before of his hatred for the Kennedys. That wasn't exactly his feeling. He was very impressed by the Kennedys, and he would have liked to have had the impact publicly that John Kennedy did. And in the back of it, it he believed that intellectually he had served with, but when he was in the Senate or vice president, he knew the Kennedy family. And it was in part a question of envy and of an aspect of frustration that they had achieved what he most would have liked, which was a publicly admiration and symbolism. On the other hand, he also was very, was very opposed to the so, But he never, it was not an, it was not an unambiguous feeling. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of admiration for the Kennedy and envy. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let me ask you about the thing that you did together that perhaps you'll most be remembered for, which is um, the outreach to China and ushering China back into, you know, out from the cold, as it were, in the, in the international community. What made that so stunning was not just that it happened, but that it was Nixon who made it happen. 
because he was such a flamboyant anti-communist. That's how he built his career. I think other than Joe McCarthy, there were few others who were so identified with anti-communism in the Congress than Nixon. Did that make it easier? Did that make it a more politically, a more palatable possibility? I know you were the architect of that. So tell me what your thinking was. I contributed to it, but he acted also independently. The thinking was when the Nixon administration came into office, it became embedded that there were conflicts between the two big communist countries. There were military action in Manchuria between the two sides. And so we came to the view that if you have two enemies and it is unwise to drive them together and you should try to see what differences you could exploit. And if you had to back one against the other, you were better off backing the weaker against the stronger. And at that time, China was by far the weaker. They had gone through the Cultural Revolution, but they were going through it at the time. And they were doing appalling things within their own country. So the courageous decision of Nixon was that he reached out to them on the basis that we both had a common interest in preventing Soviet domination. And, but there were very few communications between the, there were practically none. So we had to find a way to communicate with the Chinese. And the Chinese on their side did it also clear now. On very practical terms, they thought that if they could make it look as if we had an interest in them, it would restrain the Soviets vis-a-vis them. And that's really what happened. But that wasn't, from the beginning, that wasn't so obvious. Once we had the relationship, we then deliberately used it to try to play the two sides against each other and to position ourselves so that we were always closer to each of them than they were to each other. But that was an evolution that didn't happen from the first day on, because at first we didn't know how to communicate with them. With them. And so we tried various channels, and finally a message we sent through the Chinese Pakistan president received the reply. But it was a very torturous process. We would write out our messages in type on machines you couldn't trade so easily. And we sent them by messenger to the Pakistan capital, and they sent it by messenger to Beijing, so it exchanged to the week. And because they were afraid of Soviet reaction, and we felt we needed to determine that an opening was possible at all. So this went on for about nine months that way before Nixon sent me to Beijing as a representative. Let me ask you, obviously the strategic benefits uh, in the next couple of decades were panned out, bore out. Today, we have a situation where China is a competitor, a rising challenge. Relations are, are not good. And you have Xi Jinping, who's taken a much more aggressive posture. It's a country that's notorious for stealing commercial secrets, a country that suppressed democracy in Taiwan. I'm sorry, in Hong Kong, it's menacing Taiwan. You know, it's sent more than a million Uyghurs to concentration camps, labor camps. Has this move boomeranged now 
did you guys unwittingly help create a, a Frankenstein? First, I want to say that my personal view on foreign policy always been nonpartisan, and I have always been in contact with the Democratic administration when they were in office. And I never attacked opposing president Bernie or Secretary of State. Well, let, let me just interrupt and attest that you were very helpful to the Obama administration in trying to achieve the New START nuclear treaty, which is an issue that you've been involved in for you know, 60 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of that. Well, thank you for saying that. I, and I did it without publicity. Yes. Well, we're giving you some right now. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> now, what's the opening to China mistake? I don't think. I think it was the great benefit of the United States for 30 years. Then China developed rapidly, more rapidly than anybody would imagine. And perhaps one should have taken a look at that earlier because that produced a Chinese capacity of making it the second most powerful state in the world. And so a fundamental problem arose, which is that we, not in the American interest for a country to exist that could overpower the United States. And so that automatically brought us into some confrontation. When that point was reached, which, when it became clear, which was, or clearer, which may have been at the end of the Obama administration or early in the Trump administration, the choice was whether we should deal with it by confrontation or whether we should attempt to deal with this absolutely unique situation initially or primarily by dialogue. Because what is absolutely unique about this situation is that both countries have the unilateral capacity to destroy the world. And if they get into a conflict, there is no inherent restraint in the technology. And if you look even to World War One and compare none of the leaders who went into World War I would have dreamed of doing it had they known what the world would look like at the end. Well, the world now in a Chinese-American military conflict will look infinitely worse than it did after World War I. So I think it is an obligation for our foreign policy and there to discuss the issues that might get out of control and we have not handled that well. Trump started it. Biden, in my view, conduct essentially the same policy towards China. And it is the biggest challenge before humanity. Late in my life, I became interested in artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. You wrote a book about it. I wrote a, I wrote a book about it. And when you look at artificial study a little of about it, and you see that objects can develop their own objectives, and weapons can. How to aim the weapons you yourself create? That's an overriding problem. So we have two contradictory needs. One, we have to defend the national interest and achieve our security, and we must build up technology for that purpose. But we should also be in a dialogue with other high-tech countries about how to prevent this from getting out of hand. And this hasn't been achieved yet. Let me ask you what your reaction to Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was. I thought it was 
an unwise thing to attempt to do. I didn't say anything public, but I thought it was unwise. But it was just one more drop of water, and it was a drop of water that it was the move that gave the other side an opportunity to threaten explicitly how they might blockade Taiwan. But the Pelosi trip is just one example of how to offer the den by someone outside to deal with this issue on the basis of confrontation. And when bad things happen and when threatening things happen, we must be willing to confront. And I, among many of your friends, I would be considered a hardliner. But on this overriding issue on war and peace, I think we need new approaches for both sides. We can't do it alone. If the Chinese don't cooperate, we'll be in a confrontation. And I am very uneasy where it goes from here on Taiwan. And it's not a partisan issue. This is something that both parties would do. And both parties would talk to each other what they think. There are a lot of other issues on which they can disagree easily. But this is not an issue in which every four years the question arises, who will defend America better? It should be assumed that the incumbents want America defended and that one should work together in helping them do it. Let me just ask you one more thing about the Nixon years and the, the issue of sort of secrecy. You, you were extraordinarily active in foreign policy, national security in that period. Nixon was, the Ford administration was. And among the things that happened were the bombing of Cambodia and Laos uh, without informing Congress, uh, support for the, the coup in Chile, support for the crackdown by the authoritarian regime in Argentina, all sort of sub rosa, wiretapping of one of your NSC colleagues over a long period of time. Is that kind of secrecy healthy for a democracy? No, it's in a proposition. One, it is better if the important public assistant made aware to the public. But let me make a few points about the incidents you went. The bombing of Vietnam and Laos, let's take those first. The political action in the beginning of the Nixon administration was that the Democrats had initiated what looked like the war in Vietnam, at least they made it one, and had sent the troops there. So they, they were restrained from attacking the conduct of the war in Vietnam. But Cambodia and Laos were not, actually Laos had been already attacked in the Democratic administration. But here was the issue. All the supplies with which the Americans were killed came through Laos. And the major target of American bombing in any administration was the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos, through which 90% of the supplies into Vietnam went. So I put that aside that anybody would have done, and Democrats did it when they fought. This was not the Department of Cambodia. I wish somebody would go through the individual decisions because there were three different aspects to the bombing of Cambodia. The first was 
that the North Vietnamese had put in excess of forty which right along the Cambodian border, inside Cambodia, and they were coming across them, killing Americans, and then withdrawing back into their areas. Any American president would have faced the decision whether to go after those base areas. And the leader of Cambodia, Prince Yanuk, actually asked Senator, told Senator Manfield, the majority leader of the Senate, and others that since the territories had been occupied by the Vietnamese, he would not object, he would not know what's going on there. But then there was the all-out attack by Vietnam into Cambodia, which happened a year later, and to which Nixon responded, and I agreed with it. You know, we can go on about it. I, 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 would, I don't want to make you do that. The, the question really wasn't about the policy. If the policy were meritorious, if the policy were justified, the question is just whether the policy should have been openly debated and discussed rather than done in secret. Absolutely. It's a statement of what American policy should be. But there are situations, I believe, even in later periods, when a president thought that taking out one target in a different country is something that he had to prepare secretly. But your question has two parts, whether one should let the land be known or whether one should deny it afterwards. As a basic principle, one should be as open as one can. It you cannot sustain. It was a mistake not to make that clearer. Another make it public. What was your reaction when you heard the story last week about these reams in, of documents, national security documents that wound up in President Trump's basement at Mar-a-Lago? Were you alarmed by that? To my mind, of course, they should be returned to the government. The question of sending U.S. Marshals into the home of a former president is one that bothers me. But I have not taken a public position on this. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, what if that president does not return the documents? I don't know enough of the details. Of the oh, okay, that's fine. Listen, I want to leave a little bit of time here to talk about your book, but I have to ask you a last question about Ukraine. Obviously, you've been a, a scholar of, of the Soviet Union and the Russians for years. You actually have a uh, you've had a relationship with Vladimir Putin. How does this end? This protracted war. And how should it end? The first, my relationship with Putin, the word relationship has the wrong connotation. He would receive me once a year for a discussion of foreign policy issues, which I reported back to the government that you previously pointed out. So I have that. That is the relationship. That's not right. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting anything other than that. There's no personal relationship. Now the question is how to end it. Or well, yes, but let me ask you before I, you speak to that, what does it mean for Europe? What does it mean for the rules-based order of the world for one country to go in and snatch another? I think the administration is correct in rejecting it, and I basically agree with the measures they have taken to resist it because it was necessary to demonstrate that Russia does not have the right on what the possibility of imposing it 
preferences by military force. So that part of it, I'm full agreement with the adventures. And how, how does it? How does it end? That's the question. It had to end with the negotiation. For you assume that Russia will continue as a state afterward, and Ukraine will be there now as a state, and it will be a state. So the situation will change quite radically because Ukraine has been armed by NATO. It been so closely connected with NATO that at the end of the war, some relationship with NATO will continue. And I was opposed to offering NATO membership to Ukraine. I think it was a mistake, but that's now water over the dam, the light of what has happened. So there has to be a negotiation. And I would warn about letting the war drag on indefinitely, because then it will become like World War I, leading to escalation, possibly escalation. So I hope that shortly the NATO countries will agree among themselves about what the outcome should be and begin to see what negotiated outcome is possible. But they cannot give Russia any gain from its war in Ukraine. So the issue that so I've suggested that for a ceasefire, they should go back to the line that now exists, that existed when the war started, which means that Russia would have to give up the sort of 15 to 20 percent of Ukrainian territory that it captured in this war before the ceasefire. After that, NATO should consider what its long-term relation with Russia, with its surviving Russia will be. And I think it is important to see whether we, Russia, on one level, has already lost the war. It has lost the war in the sense that the old idea that Russia could just march into Europe and mm-hmm. impose itself, well, that is ended because they can't even defeat Ukraine. So they can't defeat NATO. So is it possible to have a relationship with Russia in which Russia considers itself part of Europe? Or will Russia be sort of an outpost of China at the edge of Europe? I would aim for the former objective. Now, how we achieve it, it's not something we're going to settle in the conversation here. But this would be my strategic goal. Yeah, I would just say, I want to I get to your book right now, but uh, I would just say what you're suggesting was really the, that was the substance of the Minsk agreement in 2015. The Russians overran that. And for the Ukrainians, that's a tough decision to, at this point, given everything, all the blood and tears and, and loss, to just return to the status quo may be a, a politically difficult decision for Zelensky. I guess what you're suggesting is that NATO needs to have a hard talk with him. Is that? Well, I'm not asking Zelensky to give up anything that Ukraine was at, at the beginning of the war. And the other disputed territory should be left open to negotiations, but not to war. And it may take a while to settle that. But that is only a small part of the Ukraine. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. I'd be remiss if I didn't get to your book. It is really a fascinating book. It is really an account of six leaders who you, for whom you have deep admiration, who you worked with, who had great historical import in the world. Conrad Adenauer, the post-chancellor of, uh, of Germany, a post-war chancellor of Germany, who helped uh, Germany recover who helped establish a democracy in Germany, reestablish democracy in Germany. Charles de Gaulle, who led the resistance to Nazi control during the war, later became a towering figure as France's president. Lee Kuan Yew, the father of the modern city-state of Singapore. Anwar Sadat, who, who was a wartime Nazi collaborator, who ultimately gave his life to the cause of peace with Israel, assassinated. I wish I had more time to talk to you about the damage the assassin's bullet has done over the course of history. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, who took the helm of Britain at a time of industrial decline and in, in, in a dispirited country, and of course Nixon himself. I have to ask you the question: Each of them, and you you describe this in detail from your own interactions, but each of them displayed qualities that were unique to them. What is the quality? What is the through line among all these leaders that you see as an, as uh, imperative to leadership? a conviction about the purposes of their society and courage in pursuing objectives in ambiguous situations and thereby help their society to move from where they are to where they have not yet been. I think these were attributes that all the leaders I described had. I was struck 60 years ago, almost 60 years ago, you said something that it seems to me underlies your analysis in this book. You said there are two kinds of realists, those who manipulate facts and those who create them. The West requires nothing so much as men who create their own reality. And that's really what you're talking about, the, the, um, the force of will, the clarity of purpose, the vision of what the future could look like, and an appreciation for the qualities of a society, uh, the most important values and qualities of a society that need to be the foundation of that future. That's exactly the point I was trying to make, yes. You have led such an extraordinary life, and you have uh, had an impact in so many uh, ways on history and always have interesting insights. And I would highly recommend this book to anyone who has an interest in statesmanship. And uh, it, it's called Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. Dr. Kissinger, thank you so much for, for being with me. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for the spirit in which you conducted this conversation. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.